Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to the long-awaited 57th episode of The Essential X-Lapsed. We are back in the Silver Age after, boy, a long time away. You know, and actually, before I started recording this, I meant to go back and look to see when the last time we did an Essentials episode was. And I forgot, <laughs> so I don't know. But, uh, wow, um, this, uh, we're, we're in the second week of March right now, 2022. I... I don't know that we've done an episode of this in calendar year 2022. Couldn't be that long, could it? Yeah, it sure feels that way. Anyway, without any further ado, let's get back into this here. We are going to be meeting a Golden Age hero who uh, doesn't have a whole lot of acclaim uh, before or after this issue. And uh, we're going to be checking in with our with our heroes as they wander around, or they try to wander around without the guidance of their creepy, bald leader. Let's hop on in. This is X-Men number 44, had a May 1968 cover date. The story's called Red Raven, Red Raven, plotted by Roy Thomas. We got a new writer. This one's written, or I guess scripted, by Gary Friedrich. Layouts Don Heck, pencils Warner Roth, inks John Tartaglioni, letters Sam Rosen, colors who the hell knows, edits Stan Lee, cover price 12 cents. Now, right off the bat, uh, this is that era where the covers are a little bit strange. Um, the title, X-Men, is uh, really not front and center. You know, it's uh, it's more shrunken down, and uh, it's being replaced by one of the characters' name. I think the last one we saw was, like, The Power of Magneto was, like, in huge print with, like, the X-Men in tiny print on top. This time out, we have the X-Men in tiny print on top, but it says the X-Men featuring... The Angel. So this is going to be an Angel-focused story, or at least Marvel's hoping that by focusing on one of the characters, it might, I don't know, entice people into trying to pick it up. Maybe maybe they figure people like Angel and don't like the rest of the team. I, I don't know. I don't know. They're, they're trying something different. So credit to them for that. So inside, we open with a Magneto and Toad standing over the fallen and Xavierless X-Men. Toad, unsurprisingly, would like to see his master slay our heroes with the quickness, like right there where they lay. Quicksilver, however, suggests that perhaps they not commit cold-blooded murder just yet. Maybe they spare them. And uh, Magneto takes this to mean that he ought not kill them now, nor, you know, quickly, but instead savor this victory, and maybe revisit the whole murder thing a little later on down the line. But, since this is Pietro's suggestion, Magneto is laying all of the responsibility at his feet. So basically, if the X-Men act out, or escape their personal prisons, it's on Quicksilver's silver head. From here, we jump to the X-Men being strapped into their own personal prisons by the Toad, who uh, is explaining everything to us, and also attributing all the genius of these prisons to uh, Magneto. I mean, of course. Now, Cyclops, he's been bound and disconnected from his glove controls, and also fitted with a lead mask. And Toad's like, uh, it's funny, he's like, who would have ever thought... To, uh, to, you know, put a lead mask on Cyclops And I'm, I'm sure this is like the fourth or fifth time we've seen him with a lead mask on uh, Marvel Girl is clasped into something called hypnomagnetic bands Fair enough Beast is snapped into some titanium handcuffs Angel isn't like a highly electrified cage But it's more like a mesh net of sorts And uh, that'll come into play later And Iceman is stood in a thermonuclear heat tube It sounds extreme Anyway, we jump ahead several minutes to the X-Men regaining consciousness. And I tell you what, they are shocked. Well, maybe maybe not that shocked, but at least mildly surprised to see Wanda and Pietro uh, have seemingly rejoined their father, Magneto. 
Quicksilver, as to not throw off the scent, doubles down on his hatred of Homo sapiens. Well, I mean, he actually seems to hate them, so it's not like he's playing up a part here, but he's really hamming it up here for appearances. Though, honestly, I think his readers were not supposed to know that. Eh, sometimes hindsight is hard, right? Uh, Cyclops says something about Charlie Brown here. <laughs> okay, to which Pietro tells him, you can laugh if he must, which I don't, I don't see anybody laughing, but okay. Uh, Pietro then pulls his weirdly beloved sister away from the pig-headed teenagers so that they, uh, well, might escape or try to escape. Now, Toad is already off tattling to Magneto that the Maximoffs are arguing with the X-Men, which, I mean, shouldn't good guys and bad guys be arguing? Eh? Anyway, this causes Magneto to think that perhaps he should have just killed them all. Back to our heroes, and Warren notices a fancy flashlight just within reach. Huh, this is like the, the sort of thing you shouldn't take out of your mother's nightstand. It's it's bizarre. Anyway, this uh, flashlight actually houses a laser that enables Wari to cut himself out of the electrified mesh. And once free, he immediately goes to help Cyclops out of his leaden mask. Now, Scott is certain that this is a trap, which, I mean, yeah, probably, right? Uh, Magneto's just not going to leave a can of laser next to Warren's mesh. And they couldn't possibly know that Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch aren't 100% evil again, so it stands to reason that they think that this is a setup. Anyway, Scott tells Warren to escape and head straight to the Avengers' mansion to get some backup. And so, Warren squeezes himself out of a window and flies right off. And he goes right past Magneto, Quicksilver, and Toad. And it's here where Pietro reveals that he's recently gained the power of flight. The hell? Really? Uh, I mean, Stan can't even seem to remember this. His editorial footnote is, sorry about that. So, I mean, what are you going to do? Anyway, Pietro goes to follow Warren, but doesn't make it all that far. Because, you see, his powers of flight only enabled him to be airborne for a few seconds. So, um, pretty much any of us with the power to, I don't know, hop or jump or leap, have the ability to fly in Pietro parlance, I suppose. Now, Warren manages to escape, right? But then, the weather started getting rough, and our tiny teen was tossed. If not for the rising of a rock formation in the middle of the ocean, our angel would be lost. Our angel would be lost. So, uh, Worry grabs this weird rock formation to wait out the storm. Then, the clouds clear, and oddly, the jutting rock rises even more, revealing a whole dang island had been submerged. Our man collects himself and decides to have a look around. What he finds is a giant metal door. Thankfully, it's unlocked, or maybe just open, because he's able to saunter right on in. There, he sees a bunch of complex, fake-ass Kirby tech. He also finds himself attacked by some winged geek. Now, this is, as the cover and title alluded, Red Raven. Now, Red Raven is a long-storied character. He's a Golden Age Marvel character who first appeared in... Red Raven Comics number one, May 1940, cover date. And that's it. That, that, that's his only appearance to this point. Uh, there actually was no Red Raven number two. Instead, Human Torch was given the book. In instead of Red Raven number two, it was Human Torch number two. So uh, Jim Hammond would be the lead feature here, and uh, he would take over uh, Red Raven's storied legacy numbering. And I mean, I'm no fan of renumbering. How about we just can Red Raven and put out a Human Torch number one the next month? This, I, I don't know. I don't know. They, I mean, they, they restart things for, for so much less nowadays, right? So yes, this is Red Raven's second appearance, and his third won't come until, 
like 10 years later. He won't be seen again until Marvel premiere number 29, April 1976 cover date, where he'd be retconned into being a member of Bucky's Liberty Legion. In more recent years, he'd be dredged out of obscurity in an attempt to further legitimize the boring ass in humans by tying them in with the Golden Age. The story's called Inhuman Error, which, um, I mean, you guys know how I feel about the Inhumans, so uh, Inhuman Error is uh, kind of apt. So anyway, it is a Marvel comic, and we've got two heroes who are meeting for the first time, so I guess we're going to have to spend a few pages fighting, right? Uh, When our characters finally decide to settle their tea kettles, Red Raven offers up his secret origin. Now, this is a quick and dirty retelling of the only actual Red Raven story to this point, the origin of the Red Raven from Red Raven Comics number one. Red Raven, Red Raven, Red Raven. Okay, so here's his deal. Back in the long ago, he and his parents were on a transatlantic flight from Europe to the United States. Now, the plane would enter a thick fog and wind up crashing into an island floating in the sky. Everyone on board except him died. Now, this floating island was inhabited by bird people, or avians, retroactively tied in with the boring ass in humans. Uh, The avians would secede from Adelin, or Attilin, however you say that word, uh, probably due to boredom. Anyway, so they would take in the tot... And in the original story, they called him Red Raven due to the fact that he had red hair. Here, however, his hair is blonde. So, whoops. Uh, Now, as an adult, Red Raven came to realize that the bird people were planning on attacking Earth. Now, he would try to convince them that this probably wasn't in their best interests, especially since Earth had, like, billions of people and the avian had, like, 25. So, in the lead-up to the attack... Red would actually gas the fighting forces of the bird folk and then place them all into suspended animation pods. I mean, you think the militaries of Earth have, like, gas tubes built into their barracks and bases just in case? I mean, this is dumb, but what are you going to do? From here, Red Raven, who's now wearing his geeky costume with his artificial wings, he uh, presses a button, which, as luck would have it, separates the military complex from the rest of the floating continent and plops it into the ocean below. And um, you'd think this would, like, make news somewhere. I guess it was a, it was a larger world back then, right? Uh, we didn't have uh, connectivity the way we do now. So anyway, it hits the ocean, and it would sink, and a 20-year timer would begin. And what do you know? That 20 years ends right friggin' now. Red Raven realizes that he's probably got to restart the cycle, otherwise war will be imminent and the bird people will be slaughtered. Now, Warren isn't all that sure about any of this, and he suggests that the bird people be allowed to wake up, because... (laughs) This is hysterical. He says, like, keep the bird folk awake, because humans might learn something by studying them. So, I mean, mean, what's a little dissection, maybe a little dismemberment, some electric shots, maybe try some makeup on some of them? I mean, it'll be a great time for the bird folk, so let them wake up and uh, become lab rats. So Red Raven pretends to consider this for only a moment before blasting Warren in the chest with his ray gun. And you know, at this point, I was almost sure that Raven was going to try and toss Warren into one of the pods, considering he's like basically a birdman himself. But no, that's not the case at all. You see, Red Raven resinks the island, but first he places the Coyote Angel on a raft. Warren wakes up and wonders what his next move ought to be, and he decides, hey, maybe the Avengers can help. You know, just like Cyclops said a bunch of pages ago. But that is where we leave it for now. Uh, We're not done with the issue, though. We do have our backup, our Origins of the X-Men series that's uh, been kind of happening to us over the past few issues. Uh, This one is called The Iceman Cometh, written by Gary Friedrich. So Roy Thomas is just, outside of plotting this issue, he's just gone. 
Uh, pencils, George Tusca. Inks, John Forporton. Letters, Artie Simic. Edits, Stan Lee. And uh, Iceman Cometh. So this will be our Bobby story. And, in fact, we do open with Bobby, who's on a date with a girl named Judy. Now, as they walk home, they're attacked by Rocky Beasley and his gang of thugs. And, I mean, I tell you what, there ain't no thugs like Long Island thugs. Now, I bet you these goofs have, like, Strong Island bumper stickers. And, yeah, those do exist, and my high school parking lot was full of them. Anyway, Rocky grabs Judy and forcibly drags her away. And so Bobby reluctantly unleashes his snowy hell upon him. Naturally, as this is the 1960s, this does not endear him to sweet Judy. Instead, he's looked at as a scary monster. So I suppose Judy would have rather been dragged to wherever Rocky was going to drag her to and then used as his personal pincushion. I don't know. Anyway, Bobby rushes home to tell his oddly supportive parents about what just happened. I mean, from what we know about Bobby and his dad, they don't really get along, but here, they, uh, they're, pretty, uh, they're pretty on board. Anyway, before we know it, the entire town is at their front door trying to get their hands on the freak. Bobby tries holding them off with snowballs. So he hasn't yet learned Iceman Offensive Attack A, where he just encases them in ice, I suppose. This is just, he's just lobbing snowballs at him, and naturally he is overtaken pretty quickly. Next thing we know, our hero is sitting in a jail cell. The following morning, Professor X is doing his usual read-through of every single newspaper on the planet, and he comes across the story on Bobby Drake. And so we wrap up this chapter with our man being broken out of his cell by a big pink zapped sound effect. So next time, I suppose it'll be uh, when Bobby met Scott, but, uh, well, that's next time. (laughs) For now, um, you know, it's funny. I've been looking forward to getting back into the essentials uh, for quite a while now. I've been trying to look for a reason to kind of pump the brakes on the current year stuff as... I don't know, I hope it's not obvious or clear. If you're listening to those shows, I, I know that there's... Um, uh, there might be a little bit of overlap between the essential listenership and the, you know, original recipe listenership, but I tell you, it's a lot easier to be burned out on the current year stuff than the older stuff. Maybe it's because there's a lot more analysis we can do on stuff we already know the direction of. Um, a lot of it's hindsight, a lot of nostalgia, a lot of just, um, I don't know, kind of putting ourselves into where we were when we first read something. And I think for a lot of us, these older stories were were stories that we read as, uh, as younger people uh, during more formative years of our fandom and uh, may, uh, I don't know, inspire less cynical <laughs> analysis and, and discussion. Whereas the current year stuff, it's like we're always just waiting to see what's going to happen to us. We expect there to be continuity errors. We expect people not to care and just to... I don't know, go through the motions, whereas, you know, back in the day, whether or not it was any different behind the scenes, it, it, it felt like it was. It felt like it was different. So these stories are, I mean, they're not great, but um, I don't know, they got a charm to them that uh, not every book we get nowadays has. So I'm very, very happy to be back in the Essentials, back in the Silver Age. Now, with all that said, there really isn't much to say about this issue, either story, really. It's just a... A story that happened. Uh, of course, we are building to a um, sort of kind of seminal clash between the X-Men and the, and the Avengers here. A very iconic cover of them charging toward one another that we'll be getting in a couple of episodes' time. But here it just feels like we're filling pages and uh, 
facilitating Roy Thomas giving us a little bit of a obscure Golden Age history here, which certainly seems right up his alley. And you guys know me. I appreciate lore. I appreciate the idea that everything matters and everything happened and uh, every character uh, belongs somewhere. But this, uh, this kind of feels like, uh, and I'm probably projecting here because of how often like online discourse when we discuss comics goes to like a contest between fans as to who can out-obscure the other. It's like, I, if I can mention a character you've never heard of, well, then I'm a better comic fan than you, and I know more than you, and I'll be looked at as a historian, fake-ass or otherwise. When I see Roy Thomas dragging up Red Raven... <laughs> I kind of get that impression here. And, I mean, this is a long time ago. Who knows if this is just a case of Roy, like, flexing his obscure comics history knowledge or if he really had uh, designs on bringing Red Raven into the Silver Age. And, I mean, (laughs) it didn't ultimately happen, but I don't know. Stranger things have, I suppose. But um, really not a whole heck of a lot more to say. Our new writer, Gary Friedrich, his scripting was fine. You know, and... And, and fine is um, is a compliment because had I not looked at the credits, I wouldn't have noticed that it was a different writer. Which I mean, I guess that's a kind of a compliment. <laughs> it's I mean, it's not saying it uh, was awful or pulled me out of the story. It was fine. It was fine. So uh, I'm not overly concerned with the book taking a big dip in quality uh, of writing with uh, Roy Thomas away from the helm. But of course, we will find out as we work our way through. But, uh, yeah, that's all I gotta say about the stories, but that's not the story of this issue. We've got more stuff to discuss. We've got our letters page, our bullpen bulletins, our mighty Marvel checklist. Oh, boy, I mean, a lot of back matter stuff. It's like I almost forgot how much back matter stuff uh, goes into an episode of The Essentials here, and uh, I didn't quite plan accordingly for my time allotment. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, these episodes take a lot longer than the current year stuff. It's... Very, very strange. Anyway, let's get into our letters page here, and we have a star-studded letters page here. We are starting with a letter from Keith Giffen, and uh, I'm guessing, hopefully, it's that Keith Giffen in New Jersey. Now, he claims to be writing on behalf of SPEMV, which is the Society for the Prevention of Extinction of Marvel Villains. And he's uh, basically against villains being beaten in a single issue, and he cites Radioactive Man, Jack Frost, Crimson Dynamo, Locust, Cuckoo Khan, Plant Man, and the Eel as villains who were taken out a bit too quickly. And, uh, I mean, different strokes and whatnot, but, I mean, I I don't know that anybody would be clamoring for the return of Cuckoo Khan, but uh, hey, what do I know? What do I know? I might suggest that we need a Spemva now more than ever. I mean, Marvel villains are being killed all the time, or they're being turned into good guys. Of course, when they die, they're brought back almost immediately, and uh, when they're good guys, they turn back to bad guys, then back to good guys, so maybe it's more uh, the prevention of the flip-flopping of Marvel villains. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, back to Mr. Giffen here. He'd really like to see an X-Men annual, and when he saw that Daredevil was getting one first, he viewed that as a slap in the face. Now, Stan says that the letters that get published don't necessarily reflect the wishes of the majority of Marvel readers because so many of the letters we get in the pages of X-Men want there to be an X-Men annual. So Stan's basically telling folks to, you know, pump the brakes and not get it twisted. Not everybody wants an X-Men annual. In fact, there are a lot of people who wanted the Daredevil one, so they are giving the fans what they want. It's just, uh, you know, vocal minority stuff like that. He also believes that they've been treating the Marvel baddies with the right amount of respect, though... He does say if anybody disagrees, he'd like to hear it. Next up, we got Greg in California, who's here to give us a science lesson. 
And these always work out great, don't they? When someone writes into school stand on science. Uh, now, Greg claims that the angel should not be able to fly because he is lacking tail feathers. He says that Warren should have tail feathers grafted on during his Origins of the X-Men spotlight. And he'd also like a no prize for pointing this out. So, I gotta wonder, like, does Namor have tiny tail feathers on his feet? Like, maybe between his toes? I, I don't know. Now, Stan says Warren can fly because he's a mutant in a comic book, you jagoff. Well, actually, it's a bit nicer than that, but that's basically the gist of it. Next up, Joel from Indiana is writing in to say that he wants to see Iceman get the respect that he deserves. He says he's got the powers to go to absolute zero, which makes him among the most powerful characters in Marvel. And so he was annoyed when Iceman was pitted against Magneto because he was repeatedly referred to as the weakest of the X-Men back then. And of course that was, uh, what was that, X-Men number 17, 18, somewhere around there? Anyway, Joel was so upset in reading that, he uh, nearly traded his X-Men for Millie the Model. Ooh. Joel wraps up his missive by revealing that he's a Boy Scout, which he hopes is enough to get his letter published. If you remember, we got a letter a few issues ago where... Some smartass was writing in to kind of poke holes in who Stan chooses to publish. And he's like, uh, hey, if, you, if you're someone in uniform, Stan's going to publish your thing. So if you're in the military, just say it and Stan will publish you. So here's uh, Joel's attempt at getting his uh, letter published by saying, yes, I'm a guy in uniform. And well, it looks like it was enough because, I mean, it certainly wasn't the quality of the letter that got this published because it's not a very good letter. Anyway, Stan tells Joel to be patient with uh, how they're uh, depicting Iceman, and also not to mistake weakness for immaturity. Because, I mean, Bobby is still the youngest of the X-Men, and he'll eventually grow into his powers, if Joel's willing to wait, like, 55 years, maybe? I don't know. Next up, we might just have ourselves another VIP here. It's a letter from Carl Gafford in Connecticut, and uh, Carl Gafford, of course, is a colorist, or a future colorist at this point. I think it's the same guy because he does actually mention colors in his letter. Now, Carl loved issue number 40. It's uh, the Frankenstein issue. He especially appreciated the colors. Huh. He says the colorist did the best work ever and loved the difference between the light blues of Beast's costume and the dark blues of Cyclops' costume. Though, as far as the designs are concerned, he feels as though Marvel Girls might be a little bit too daring. Hmm. He didn't mind the shorter story, which, you know, the, the story was shortened to make room for the origins of the X-Men backup, and he also enjoyed the backup as well. Mr. Gafford finishes up by saying he hopes that Don Heck stays on the book forever. <laughs> really, dude? Okay. Now, Stan says that he's been left speechless by this missive, so that's that. Next up, Scott in California. Now, he liked seeing the X-Men meet Frankenstein, but he isn't sure he enjoyed the story. Huh? I mean, that was the story. Okay. Uh, he does not want to see more superheroes versus monsters like Dracula or the creature from the Black Lagoon, so... Hey, Scott, we're on the same page, pal. He does not dig the new X-Men costumes. Now, he compares them now to, like, an Avengers-type group where they all have different-looking costumes, rather than being, like, a Fantastic Four-type unit like they had been. He says even though he doesn't like them, he's sure he'll get used to it. And he even cites a few other things he didn't like that uh, he talked himself into liking later on, or just at least getting used to. And uh, those uh, things are Peter Parker aging. He's not a fan of that, but he's okay with it. And also the Fantastic Four's, quote, cumbersome cast of characters, to which I'm sure he is totally talking about the boring-ass Inhumans. And um, 
Well, Scotty, you're among friends now. You can dislike them all you like. Now, he wraps up by saying he wore his Incredible Hulk t-shirt while hiking a national park and got stopped and questioned a few times. Hmm. Now, Stan tells us that there's a definite reason why they changed the costumes to be more individualized and unique and suggests that uh, Scotty stick around in order to find out what it is, and uh, I think we're, we're still waiting for that, right? Uh, now, he says that there won't be any more movie monsters in the mags anytime soon, which, hmm, I suppose it's a good thing I'm not a fact-checker. Next up, we got David in Iowa. Now, he loved seeing Frankenstein in issue number 40. He also loves the colorful new costumes, and, and, and huh, he, he loves Jacko Diamonds from the Cyclops backup. I, I guess he's the one. Uh, now, he suggests that Cyclops get better control of his powers as he gets older. He's like, hey, maybe he can age and mature into his powers and get more control over his deadly, cursed eyes. And he cites Quicksilver's newfound ability to fly <laughs> as a case of someone maturing into their powers, which, I mean, according to this very issue, Stan doesn't even seem to remember. I mean, hell, I, I would have lost money on that bet myself. And uh, Stan does not offer much of a response here. Next up, we got another David. This one's in California. He liked seeing Iceman beat up Frankenstein. He did not care for the dark, muddy art, though, and he wonders why the X-Men weren't given many close-ups in this issue, considering they were, you know, debuting their new costumes. Now, Stan suggests that Davey maybe use a magnifying glass the next time he peruses the issue, but then he apologizes for depicting the characters so diminutively. They were very tiny in the book, apparently. I don't remember that standing out to me, but, uh... Yeah, what do I know? Uh, we wrap up with Grady in Texas. Now, recently Grady picked up a magazine that featured a man with wings holding a woman in a skin-tight costume, and it wasn't the X-Men. In fact, it wasn't a comic book at all. It was a scientific article on how a race of superhumans could be produced. <laughs> Oy, um, now, it was about this newfangled hoodoo called cloning. You may have heard of it. Now, his quick and dirty explanation has to do with the manipulation of nuclei before birth, making it so eggs of certain animals can be made to hatch into unrelated animals. So, ipso facto, yada yada yada, winged men and Atlanteans might be right around the corner. Stan straight up admits that he's uh, kind of turned on at the thought that a mutant race is a possibility, so uh, might be time for a cold shower. Now, I did try to find out what magazine Grady picked up, so I might share the cover at the very least, but I haven't been able to find it. If anybody knows what it might have been, please let me know. I, I, I've taken a look at so many damn magazine covers from 1966 through 68 and could not find anything with a winged man or a costume woman on the cover that uh, matches up to Grady's explanation. But that, my friends, is the letters pages. Now, the bullpen bulletins, and it's a... You see, this is the second golden age of Marvel Comics, apparently, and so they're launching a ton of books. So, sadly, one of the casualties of that is the Bullpen Bulletins page is uh, a lot shorter in as far as news items are concerned, because the Mighty Marvel checklist is eating up a lot of this paginal real estate. So we will uh, we'll go through it, though. The Bullpen Bulletins, otherwise known as the Senses Shattering Surprises, go on and on. Item. First, Captain America and Incredible Hulk got their own books. Then, Iron Man and Submariner got their own books. Now, Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., and Doctor Strange get their own solo monthly books. Nick Fury will be drawn by Jim Steranko. Doc Strange will be drawn by Dan Atkins. 
and stands suggest you bust through the crowds at the newsstands to buy yourselves a copy or two, because uh, this is a tremendously huge deal, front facers. Um, item! Just in case you haven't heard, this is the second Golden Age of Marvel, and it rolls on. We got full-length features still forthcoming in 1968 for the following characters. Doctor Doom, Kazar, and Silver Surfer. Item, the... hmm, the Merry Marvel marching ranks, we're still doing this? We haven't finished this yet? I feel like we've been doing this for years. Okay, to refresh, since it's been a minute, our ranks are... we've got five so far, and the sixth one will be named today. Rank one, RFO, Real Frantic One. Two, QNS, Quite Enough Saya. Three, TTB, Titanic True Believer. Four, KOF, Keeper of the Flame. Five, PMM, Permanent Marvelite Maximus. Ugh. Now, our sixth and final is the FFF, a fearless front facer. This is a purely honorary title awarded by Smile and Stand to those whose devotion to Marveldom has gone above and beyond the call of duty. And I wonder if, like, producing, like, near 400 episodes of X-Men podcasts is good enough to get that rank. Eh, probably not. But that, that's the bullpen bulletins. Not a whole heck of a lot. Hopefully... Hopefully this will even out later on. I, I want there to be more bullpen bulletins, because they're, they're fun to talk about. But, as mentioned, the Mighty Marvel checklist is overflowing this month, so let's get into it. Not Brand Ech, number eight, has a four Bushmen. Again, I mean, there isn't much more to Not Brand Ech, as uh, we're, we're going to be finding out in just a few episodes. Uh, Fantastic Four, number 75, is a surefire sellout. It's a focus on the Silver Surfer, who is currently hiding out from Galactus. Spider-Man 61 has Spider-Man vs. the Kingpin, and it's the final round, apparently. Avengers 52, Enter the Black Panther. Also, the Grim Reaper. Stan calls this one a mind-snapper. Daredevil number 40, he tries to save the world from the Exterminator's T-Ray. And also, Ape-Man, Bird-Man, and Cat-Man. Mighty Thor number 152 has Asgardian Pandemonium. Okay. Captain America number 102 has the fourth Sleeper Awakening. Incredible Hulk number 104 has Hulk vs. the Rhino. Iron Man number 2 has Iron Man vs. the Demolisher. Submariner number 2 has Triton of the Inhumans. Um, Marvel's Spaceborn Superhero Captain Marvel number 2. That's a long title. I don't know that that's actually on the cover. It might be, for all I know. Marvel's Spaceborn Superhero. Uh, this has Cap vs. the Super Scroll. Uh, the premiere-ish of Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, is called Who is Scorpio? And Stan promises that James Bond fans are going to have to eat their hearts out. The premiere-ish of Doctor Strange has uh, the coming of Doctor Strange, so somebody grab the tissues. Uh, Sergeant Fury number 54 has Izzy Cohen in the steamy Berman jungles. Captain Savage number 3 has Savage teaming with Sergeant Joe Morita versus Baron Strucker in Hydra. Marvel Superheroes number 14 features an all-new Spider-Man story, plus reprints. Marvel Tales number 14 features Marvel Boy. And Marvel Collector's Items Classics number 15 features reprints. Now we wrap things up with Stan's Soapbox, where Stan's got a, a blockbuster announcement for us about a big project he's been working on to uh, upgrade comics magazines. And he says this is coming next month. This as-yet-untitled Illustrated Adventure Tales mag from Marvel will be bigger than a comic book, printed on better paper in full color with a fully painted cover. It'll be yours for just 35 American cents. Now, Stan warns newsstand goers to look where their vendors put magazines and not comic books due to the size of this one. He says the star of this book will be 
well, duh, Spider-Man. And this will wind up being the Spectacular Spider-Man magazine. Uh, Stan says that the fans have been demanding this giant leap forward in comics production, so uh, you only have yourselves to blame for having to spend 35 cents on something. But that, my friends, is it. It's a lot of fun being back in the Silver Age. I don't know about you guys, but uh, I had a pretty good time with this one. It took me a lot longer than I was expecting it to. <laughs> it's just so much stuff to uh, to research and pull from and, and look around for. But um, I'm definitely pleased to be revisiting the Silver Age once again. I hope you guys are enjoying it as well. Now, if you'd like to reach out and tell me you are, or I guess aren't, please feel free to do so. I, I would... Uh, Absolutely love to hear from you. You can find me several different ways. You can see me on Twitter at Ace Comics, Instagram 90s X Men. You can send an email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com or call into the X Labs voicemail hotline at 623 396 Jerk. For blog posts and show notes, you can go to Chris's on com. You can chat us up on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X Men. Of course, the complete audio archives are available anywhere you find noise or at chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and there is the Patreon. That is patreon.com slash xlapsed. And that's where I'll put a button in it for now. I'd like to thank you all so much for allowing me to spend a little bit of time with you today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya!